Welcome back to another episode of Ichabod's House. We are on season two, episode 15, Lizzie Borden, part two, right? Or three? Part two. Three. Part three. Three. Lizzie Borden, part three. Are her pants on fire or is she just misunderstood? These are things inquiring minds want to know about. Yeah. For sure. I'm your host, Andy, along with my co-host, Jennifer. Hi, everybody. And we are joined again today by our beautiful mother, Connie. Hello, everyone. And uh, in just a minute, we're going to get into the um, final episode of Lizzie Borden and all that stuff that the court, the trial and all that good stuff. Um, But first, we have to do Ichabod's Nose Picks. And mine, honestly, I know I've just been watching a lot of Datelines. I've been watching a lot of murder shows. Things like that. That's what I'm feeling my days. Um, I watched, I binged uh, the first part of season four of Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. And I want to say I uh, love it. I love those characters so much. I love that show so much. Uh, This season has a lot more action, a little more horror-y, horror-y. Not hoary, <laughs> horror-y looking stuff uh, to it that's actually scary. <laughs> you sound like the the Catholic minister in Princess Bride. Mawad. Mawad. Hawaii. And I love it. I love it. Truly love it. Same. I love I love all of those characters and they're yeah, it's a phenomenal season. Of course, of course it is. Yes. It's wonderful. And so if you haven't watched Stranger Things yet, uh go back to the beginning, watch them all because they do a great job with an ensemble cast of kids. Uh the adults are hilarious in it and awesome. Great character arcs through the whole thing. Uh season four is the shit. So that's my pick. Uh, Mom. Yes. Well, I have a couple of things. First of all, I wanted to share with everybody that I finished another Stone Barrington novel this week called The Safe House. House. And his main character, Stone Barrington, I mean, that man sleeps with anything that is female and, and then some. So it's always interesting to read those books. But, you know, sometimes I feel like... Uh, uh, Stuart Woods is becoming more of a lazy writer than anything oh, that has any intrigue. Throwing some but, shade. Okay. Yes, I am. Oh, I anyway, know. I have a joke to share. Please do. <clears throat> okay. Uh, do you know the definition of a macho woman? <laughs> no. <laughs> she can kickstart her own vibrator. <laughs> So I out of the gate this morning. I love that. Vibrators back in the day had the pole start, like on the, <laughs> they were gas powered. Like on the and, lawnmowers. And like lawnmowers <laughs> and chainsaws, you had to pull start it. And women everywhere could not do it. But now they can kick, they start, can it. kick start it. That's the definition. Of I love it. it. I love yeah. it. So okay, that's fantastic. Well, that, that was a fantastic joke, Mom. Don't edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Woo! All I right. 
Okay, so shall we get rolling on Lizzie? Absolutely. Okay, so on Monday, August 9th, an inquest was launched into the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden. This didn't make a whole lot of sense as an inquest is called in order to determine whether or not a crime has been committed. And there never was any doubt that a crime had been committed. So what exactly was going on? Speculation can go in any direction here, but the reality is that police wanted a way to question Lizzie under oath, and an inquest was a way to make this happen. The man tasked with questioning Lizzie at this inquest was the DA, Hosea Knowlton. Also present was Josiah Blaisdell, who was the Justice of Bristol County. Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, had requested to be present but was denied, and so Lizzie faced the, D- the DA without any representation. But law enforcement had been summoned, and Marshal Hilliard, Dr. William Dolan, who was the medical examiner, George Seaver, who was a state detective, and a stenographer named Miss Annie White were all there as well. Hilliard carried in his pocket an arrest warrant for Lizzie. Despite this inquest being called a procedure held to determine if a crime had been committed, the town and law enforcement had already determined Lizzie was most likely guilty of murder. They felt they had enough to convict they felt they had enough to convict Lizzie, yet this inquest was still called and Hilliard did not yet act on the warrant in his pocket, but everyone knew how this inquest would end with the arrest of Lizzie Borden. Now, you may recall from our first episode on the Bordens that one of the issues the Borden daughters had with Abby was with the house Andrew bought for Abby's sister to live in. Remember, Abby's sister, Bertie, was living in a place she could no longer afford to mitigate costs and save her from supposedly becoming homeless at the worst or at the very least having to move house or at the very least having to move. Andrew purchased the place and let her stay there. This pissed off his daughters to a great extent, allegedly. However, during interrogation at the inquest, Lizzie seems to have denied this. She reported they were, quote, quite cordial with one another. I do not mean the dearest of friends in the world, but very kindly feelings and pleasant. I do not know how to answer any better than that. The guy doing the questioning was the DA, Hosea M. Knowlton, and he was determined to extract every bit of information about the murders he possibly could from Lizzie. His questioning started with wanting Lizzie to explain why she didn't call Abby mother, to which Lizzie replied, she just didn't. I did not call her mother. What name did she go by? Mrs. Borden. When did you begin to call her Mrs. Borden? I should think five or six years ago. Before that time, you had called her mother? Yes, sir. What led to the change? The affair with her stepsister. Bertie Whitehead was Abby's half-sister, referred to as a sister, not a stepsister, as Lizzie said here. So that the affair was serious enough to have you change from calling her mother, do you mean? 
I did not choose to call her mother. Have you ever called her mother since? Yes, occasionally. To her face, I mean. Yes. Often? No, sir. Seldom? Seldom. I would be so irritated with this dude. (laughs) He's asking the same question over and over again. Exactly. And so one can see how gruelingly boring this was. It was long, tedious, and not at all pleasant for anyone involved. But after this line of questioning, the focus turned to what Lizzie had done just prior to the murders. Remember, she had been trying to heat up some irons on the stove that she could press some handkerchiefs. There was a big old sale going on for dress goods downtown. But also remember from the first episode, the irons weren't hot, so Lizzie couldn't work on the hankies right away. So did she go outside? Did she stay inside? Knowlton questioned her relentlessly, hammering every little detail almost to the point of nausea. But while we might think this was cruel, and to some extent it was, it also showed that Lizzie had trouble getting her story straight. Where was she, for example, when her father had gotten home? I was down in the kitchen reading an old magazine that had been left in the cupboard, an old Harper's Bazaar magazine. But wait! Remember, and this is critical, when Bridget was questioned by police, she said that Mr. Borden had forgotten his house key and so had knocked at the front door. Bridget had trouble unlocking it and apparently swore in frustration as she struggled. And she heard Lizzie laugh, the sound coming from upstairs. So this put Lizzie in some serious hot water. Bridget testified to hearing Lizzie laugh from upstairs, and Lizzie says she was in the kitchen reading a magazine. Something is smelling a bit fishy here. It's also worth noting that the medical examiner, Dr. Dolan, was sure Abby Borden was killed quite before Andrew Borden was killed. By my calculations, as soon as Andrew walked into the Borden house that day, he had about 20 minutes of life left which means Abby Borden was upstairs, not out visiting a sick friend, as Lizzie originally said, which further means that if Lizzie's laugh did indeed come from upstairs, then Abby was up there with her. But it gets even better. Knowlton continued with his questioning. Are you sure you were in the kitchen when your father returned? I am not sure whether I was there or in the dining room. Did you go back to your room before your father returned? Yes, I carried some clean clothes upstairs and stayed to mend something. Was that the time when your father came home? He came home after I came downstairs. You were not upstairs when he came home? I was not upstairs when he came home, no, sir. Where were you when the bell rang? I think in my room upstairs. (laughs) Then you were upstairs when your father came home. I don't know, but I think I was. What were you doing? As I said, I took up these clean clothes and stopped and basted a little piece of tape on a garment. Did you come back down before your father was let in? I was on the stairs coming down when she let him in. Then you were upstairs when your father came to the house on his return. I think I was. And now we have three versions of where Lizzie was when Andrew came home. One from Bridget, 
and two from Lizzie herself within just a few minutes of one another. However, there's a wrinkle here. Remember last week when Lizzie and Dr. Bowen were up in her room and the door locked and Fleet showed up with the search team wanting to have a look around? Remember that? And remember how Lizzie was all reclined on her sofa with her eyes half opened. Well, turns out Bowen had been dosing her with morphine to calm her nerves. You know, nobody ever does that for me. Nobody ever comes over and doses me with anything to calm me down. What's up with that? I'd be happy to put a pillow over your face or <laughs> slap you a few times like we did when you were little scratch you. I wanted some narcotics in me, legally. Can I read that last line? (laughs) Yes, you can read that last line. Well, turns out Bowen had been dosing her with morphine to calm her nerves. And on the day of the inquest, she had been heavily dosed, receiving 16 milligrams. I'm, I am, M. Just change it. That that was me just doing my medical work. um, She'd been heavily dosed, receiving 16 milligrams, and just leave it at that. She'd been dosed with 16 milligrams. You want to say that? And on the day of the inquest, she had been dosed with 16 milligrams, which we hear is kind of a heavy dose. In other words, she was under the influence of a drug at the time of her interrogation. Now, it's entirely possible that she would have made the same blunders during questioning if she hadn't been on morphine. But this is all, to say the least, somewhat suspect. I agree. If somebody's going to question me, I do not want to be under the influence of morphine. No, you don't. It's a narcotic and it was not being used for pain. Now we use it, you know, in cases of like heart attack or for chest pain or for, you know, it's not really used a whole lot for things other than that. Um, but it is used for, for pain and, and it does have a calming effect. But then it was just like, you get morphine and you get morphine and you get morphine. I'm going to give some morphine to myself. So, so yeah, anyway, so at this point in time, Lizzie's made some significantly contradictory statements and she's just dug a huge hole for herself. So, Knowlton decided to point these statements of contradiction out for her. You remember, Miss Borden, I will call your attention to it. So as if to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you. You remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. You have forgotten, perhaps. I have answered so many questions, and I am so confused, I don't know one thing from another. So you were downstairs. I think I was downstairs in the kitchen. And then you were not upstairs. I think I was not. I now call your attention to the fact that you had specifically told me you had gone upstairs and had been there about five minutes when the bell rang, and you were on your way down and were on the stairs when Maggie let your father in that day. Yes, I said that, and then I said I did not know whether I was on the stairs or in the kitchen. Now, how will you have it? Where were you? I think, as nearly as I know, I think I was in the kitchen. 
Now, Knowlton also wanted to know how it was that Lizzie and Mrs. Borden never crossed each other's paths, despite spending two hours in the house together that morning. If Mrs. Borden went to see a sick friend, as Lizzie stated, they would have had to run into each other, or at least spoken. But Abby was found murdered in the guest room, which was where she had gone originally to change out pillowcases. And and so as expected, a few short hours after the inquest was over, Lizzie was arrested. And after the arrest came the preliminary hearing where Judge Blaisdell listened to everything presented and cried as he said, (coughs) The long... Examination is now concluded, and there remains but for the magistrate to perform what he believes to be his duty. I said duty. (laughs) It would be a pleasure for him, and he would doubtless receive much sympathy if he could say, Lizzie, I judge you probably not guilty, you may go home. But sympathy must be laid aside in view of the evidence. I mean, imagine a man standing before the court under the same circumstances, offering the same alibi. There'd be no question as to what should be done with such a man. There is only one thing to do, painful as it may be. The judgment of the court is that you're probably guilty. And you are ordered, committed to wait the action of the superior court. And also, duty. And so it was a sure thing now. Lizzie was going to trial. And the judge needed to go have a shot and a Kleenex. Exactly. Okay, so let's legit or bullshit here. What do we think of Lizzie's inability to say where she was at the time of the murders? Okay, and then we're going to talk about the morphine and was she guilty? Could there have been another individual at the time of the murders? Here's what I think. I think that that was a terrible way of questioning her, and I have some sympathy for her now. Because, granted, if she did it, you know, that sucks. But still, you shouldn't – we put so many innocent people in jail – for circumstantial evidence, in my non-professional opinion. And um, I think that was a horrible way to question her. Horrible. I agree. I agree. Mom, what are your thoughts? Well, we have to remember the times. And as as the judge said, and as he was crying so beautifully, (laughs) said that, um, (laughs) you know, had it been a man, there would be no doubt, but it's hard to convict a woman And I think because, in my opinion, because she was a woman, that perhaps they aren't so quick to rush rush to judgment in that there are circumstances that really can't be defined or whatever. But in the end, did she or didn't she? So you're thinking that maybe she had to go through that line of questioning because she was a woman. That was so grueling because they didn't want to rush to judgment. They didn't want to take anything for granted. Yeah. I have a hard time imagining somebody committing that level of crime. I will say it was a very personal crime. I mean, you don't, a a hatchet's a short-handled thing and you don't whack somebody to death that many times if you don't have a great deal of hatred for them or you're crazy 
and I have a hard time reconciling how Lizzie could have been in the same house with Abby. No one saw the note. Abby clearly never left. Lizzie was clearly on the stairs coming down. I, I mean, I really have a hard time. If she had been up there on that side, remember the upstairs was divided. Right. And she and Abby were on the same side of the upstairs. I have a hard time imagining that if Lizzie had been up there at the same time as Abby, she didn't hear her get killed or didn't see something because clearly the killer must still be in there then if Andrew comes home and gets killed. So I am still, um, I think Lizzie's testimony is bullshit. I, I think that she's, I think she's guilty. I think I agree with judge Blaisdell. She's probably guilty and she needed to be held over for the crime she committed. I don't think she's a mass murderer. I don't think she's going to kill, go out and kill other people, but I think that she's guilty of killing her dad and her stepmom. I would just like to add that, um, again, as Jen mentioned, uh, the hatred, it was a personal crime. Yeah. I think there was much hatred and much anger in that. And let's also remember uh, back, I think it was episode two when we were talking that Lizzie was having her monthly courses. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether or not that could have been pre-menstrual strain or menstrual strain, who knows? I don't think, obviously, that was never discussed or even thought about. But, you know, it begs the question, if she has harbored all this hate and anger for all this time, what was the trigger that finally made her do this? Agreed, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. is interesting for sure. Because he wasn't home. So, you know, was it plot? If she did do it, was it plotted out? Because, you know, he was gone. So it wasn't like a spur of the moment he called her a name and she just went off. Like you said, like what was the trigger? What did it? But could it have been Abby? Could Abby have said something snarky to her upstairs? Oh, sure. At, but here's the other thing. It would have had to have happened sometime before that because Lizzie would have had to have retrieved a hatchet from somewhere Um, unless she just kept a hatchet on hand in case you knew she was going to lose her shit someday. And and that's not like something you leave on the bedside table like lotion. Likely story. Right. And even if she did leave it on the bedside table, she'd have to get it. You know, I mean, how would she what's she going to do? Wait till Abby's in her room? You know, imagine if Abby was on the other side of the house. Right. Run all the way down the stairs, run all the way up the back stairs, and then whack Abby in her room. I mean, so my theory is something happened when they were all downstairs together or when Bridget was out cleaning the windows outside. Abby said something and Lizzie decided, you're going down. I am so done with this. And maybe Abby said something like, and your father agrees with me or whatever we've talked about, you know? So Abby goes upstairs, Bridget's outside, Lizzie goes downstairs, follows her up, whack, 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 whack. Only 10 and a half times. We know this now. We know this now. And then it wasn't 40. And then what? Is she changing her clothes? Is she putting something on over the bloody dress? I mean, what? What is she doing there? Because then we know by the time Andrew comes home, Abby's or uh, Lizzie's coming down the stairs, and Andrew's only got about 20 minutes left to live. 
Um, and Bridget opens the door. Then Bridget goes outside again. And I mean, sorry, Lizzie did it. I don't think she's a mass murderer. I think that she had targeted these two people specifically, and I think she never paid for a crime. Well, yeah, and I think, too, I think that it had a lot to do, and I think you're right. Abby probably said something, and this is just my guess, is that she did say something about Andrew buying her sister a home. Because I think that, you know, Lizzie and um, what's her name? What's the sister's name? What's Lizzie's older sister? Emma. Emma. They were in their late twenties and early thirties and still were forced to live at home and he wouldn't buy them a house. And I think that was a a subject of contention as well. And so they could have been talking about that. Andrew bought Abby's sister a home and not them. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I I think um, that had happened, but that had happened several years earlier and was when they stopped calling her mother. Oh, that happens. Oh, so she had some time to cool down. Well, maybe it was all building up. So I don't know. And maybe there, maybe though there was talk about him buying another property for somebody else. I mean, Mm -hmm. these girls are, so at the time, Emma is quite a bit older than Lizzie. Lizzie's 32 right now. Emma is pushing 40. Okay. Okay. And, um, they are living in their parents' house. That's the equivalent of being like living in your parents' basement in this era. I mean, it's, you know, they were spinsters and, um, I would imagine Emma's, uh, um, opportunity to have a family of her own had passed. I mean, she was, and Lizzie's had all but passed as well. There's gotta be some resentment there. And not only that, but they don't have the ability to entertain people in their, in the parlor. Uh-uh, they can, uh-uh. they bring, if they have guests, the guests go upstairs to their bedroom. So, I mean, imagine being 32 years old and your mom or your stepmom saying, you guys go to your room. I'll bring you some juice boxes in a little bit. I mean, imagine that that's going to. <laughs> quack, quack, quack. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's I, definitely a crime of passion here for sure. So anyway, that's just my take on it. Okay, let's continue. Okay. What was referred to as the trial of the century began on June 5th, 1893, and would last 13 days. As in the case with trials, the prosecution kicked things off. D.A. Knowlton outlined the issues Lizzie had with Abby Borden, stressing that they didn't get along and that Lizzie had stopped calling Abby mother. He reminded jurors of the illness that had been affecting the family for the few days prior to the murders. Mrs. Borden had indicated she was afraid she was being poisoned along with the rest of the family. <laughs> Are you Shut drinking up, Luckies man. over there? Are you drinking Luckies? <laughs> Nobody's getting lucky over here. Nobody kickstarted their own vibrator. Hey, I haven't been lucky for 10 years. <laughs> okay. And things, this goes in the box. Things we don't need to know. Things we don't want. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Put that in the box. Put the lid on it. Okay. Done. Done. Okay. Where's Aunt Kathleen when you need her? That's Yes. That's right. (laughs) Um, Okay. Continue. Yes. And let's not forget that nice Mr. Eli Benz from DR Drug, who said a woman fitting Lizzie's description had come into the pharmacy requesting prussic acid just prior to the murders. 
Also, wasn't it convenient that the very night before the murders, Lizzie told her BFF, Alice Russell, about the potential for harm coming to the family? Oh, and remember, there was that alleged note Abby received from a sick friend, which never materialized, as well as the dress Lizzie burned. And Lizzie's trip to the barn to look for a sinker for the fishing line she hadn't used in years. All of this was spelled out for the jury over the first days of the trial. All of this was pretty horrific, but it was the eighth day of the trial, which was particularly awful. On that day, Dr. Dolan testified as to the nature of the wounds. The bedspread and the pillowcases from the room where Abby Borden was killed were brought out and placed over the rail of the jury box. Pictures of the crime scenes were passed around. Dolan reviewed the murders in detail and indicated that, yes, a woman could have caused the injuries suffered by the Bordens, but whoever killed Mrs. Borden would have had to stand over her with legs spread apart, one foot on either side of the body. And this was a big piece of testimony. A woman would not straddle someone, not ever, not even when committing murder. Therefore, it would had to have been a man who did the whacking. <laughs> Johnny to start over. No, Andy's laughing at the word straddle. <laughs> I can tell. <clears throat> well, I'm just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Women don't ever straddle anything ever, ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, really. <laughs> well, ladies then would not have straddled. I anything. know, but I think that they would have. I think that in an, in a ballroom filled with lots of people they wouldn't have no but i don't know you got to straddle when you step over something i i think we've all read enough <laughs> period romance novels to know that so that's what i'm women saying straddled, women straddled lots they straddled lots <laughs> yes, they, yes they did and not just horses that's what? right lots of straddling lots of straddling i'm just saying i don't i think that that is really moronic for them to say too soon. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just think it's very funny. Okay. Mm-hmm. As for Mr. Borden, whoever killed him had stood behind and above, dropping the hatchet right on him. Whack, whack, whack. This was a lot to take in. And one of the jurors actually got a little bit faint. So the group was given a five-minute recess to regroup and revive. But when they came back, Knowlton decided to pull out all the stops. And he did. He produced the skulls of Andrew and Abby and proceeded to fit the head of a hatchet into them. It fit, but it wasn't the hatchet that did the killing. So there was really no point other than the shock value and Knowlton being sort of a jerk. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, seriously, what the hell? You hey, know? listen, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> right? Yeah. But it it, it did it fit. Did fit. And they acquitted anyway. And they're like, yeah, but this isn't blood on this hatchet. It doesn't make any sense that you're using it. But, you know, they, yeah. Anyway, yeah. what the hell? Dude? I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing is very interesting. So on day nine, the prosecution called several different witnesses to stand 
to the stand to point out that no one could have gotten into and out of the Borden house and off the property without being seen. Yes. So old Mrs. Churchill next door had a boarder living with her named Thomas Bowles. He was out front washing his carriage, which I'm sure was a sports carriage, (laughs) and he could see the Borden's well house from his position at the foot of the driveway. He would have noticed if someone was fleeing. And behind the Churchill lot, a girl named Lucy Collette has spent an hour in front of Dr. Shignong's I didn't. Shan- I would call it Shan- Shannon's. Is I think Shannon. it's French. I would. Okay. I would just say Shannon. <clears throat> Behind the Churchill lot, a girl named Lucy Colette has spent an hour in front of Doctor Shannon's house on the northeast side of the Shannons. <laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> Behind the Churchill lot, a girl named Lucy Colette had spent an hour in front of Dr. Shannon's house on the northeast side of the Shannons. <laughs> okay. All right. Behind the Churchill lot, a girl named Lucy Colette had spent an hour in front of Dr. Shannon's house on the northeast side of the Shannons double lot. She would certainly have seen someone leaving Borden's house. <laughs> How many different ways can we say Shannon and Shannon? Shannon and I. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Was... <laughs> Shannon, Shannon. Oh, okay. <laughs> to the north of the Shannons, Shannons was <clears throat> Mrs. Aruba Kirby who worked in her kitchen all day long and had a perfect view of the area and could see the Shannon's barn. And she swore she saw no one going in there. Over to the south of the orchard, two men, Joseph DeRosier and John Denny, were at work sawing wood and cutting stone. At around 10.30, a laborer named Patrick McGowan leaned over the fence and picked some pears straight off the Borden's pear tree. They saw nothing unusual at the Borden house. So what do you think? While all this was all good information to have, the defense pointed out that the day of the murders, Deputy Francis Wixon had climbed the lumber pile in the Borden's yard. He then scrooched across the top rail of the fence around 1145 and jumped down onto the other side, all without being noticed by anyone until he spoke with DeRocher. Well, the prosecution finally rested, and it was the defense's turn to get into it. And while the prosecution had pointed out lots of people who would have or should have or could have seen the murderer leave, the defense pointed out that there were suspects everywhere. In fact, the area around the Borden's house was lousy with suspects. For example, the night before the murders, Martha Shannon Shannon and her stepmother heard something like footsteps or knocking on wood from over by the Borden's house. (gasps) Was it a Sasquatch? Probably. The Kirby household found a stranger passed out on their front steps. He wasn't drunk, but it was clearly all of it and almost impossible to wake up. 
The day of the murder, around 9.45 or 9.50, Mrs. Delia Manley and her sister saw a guy hanging out by the north gate of the Borden's property. And between 10.20 and 10.40, Dr. Hardy saw a creepy-looking, super-pale dude walking up the sidewalk. There was lots for the jury to think about. And by day 13, all the evidence was in and there was nothing left to do but to send the jurors out to deliberate. So we know what happened, right? Lizzie was found not guilty. But let's take a minute to talk about what we think once and for all. Did she do it? Did she not? Why does this case still bother people to this day? Well, I think that I agree that she did do it. But I think, honestly, that the um, jury did the right thing because I don't think there was hardcore. I think they gave him enough to have reasonable doubt. And agreed. I don't think that you can as a juror, I would not want to put somebody away just on that that little bit of evidence personally. And remember, it wouldn't she would not have gone to jail. She would have been hanged. Mm -hmm. The sentence should she have been found guilty of one or both. Uh, either murder, um, it would have been hanging. I yeah. I agree with you. I do think she did it, um, but I do think that the jury did the right thing. Agreed. Because I think that there was reason. I think that there's reasonable doubt, even in my mind, and I do think she did it. There's reasonable doubt. What do you think, Mom? <clears throat> I would have to agree with that. I I think um, just circumstances of her life. Um, and her sisters, uh, I think they were repressed enough in a, so- in a social environment and of their personal and financial situation that, as I said earlier, I think it got to a breaking point and something triggered uh, Lizzie to just say, you know, this is enough. I- I'm not going to do this anymore. And then to do what I feel she did too, and that is to kill uh, her father and her stepmother. Mm-hmm. And I think that that should be a lesson to all of our <laughs> listeners out there. If you are going to mess with a menstruating woman, um, you just f- fucking stupid. So, um, <laughs> and for whatever the love of you God, get, get rid of all your hatchets. That's right. I would, um, that's a time to tell her how pretty she is, how much you love her. You offer to buy her pizza and Chinese food and some hair. ice cream and chips and you brush her hair and give her some ibuprofen and then you just get the fuck out. Yeah. You do not mess with her because I think we all know it's – and she's going to be found not guilty. We clearly know that as well, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, you and told you me – And you some gummy bears too. That's share. gummy bears. Well, loaded gummy bears or just gummy bears, Mama? What are you talking about there? Just, just, just gummy bears. Just gummy bears. Okay. All right. Just gummy bears. And put on a little, you know, I don't know, rom-com. Get her a good rom-com to watch. Agreed. There you go. Pine of chocolate ice cream. That's always good. Yes. Uh, so what happened to Lizzie when all was said and done? Well, she tried to get back to normal. She attempted to attend a church again at her old con- with her old congregation. Sadly... As she sat in the pew she and Emma had occupied for years, the churchgoers, like all good Christians, rose and left their seats, completely shunning her, which was probably exactly what Jesus would have done. As for Lizzie, she said simply, if any of my old friends sees fit to ignore me, 
I shall, I suppose, be compelled to drop them. I do like her. I do for that. I think that's wonderful. I agree. Anyone who did attempt to remain her friend was treated with such scorn by society that they eventually severed ties with her. Lizzie did not let this bother her or at least was very good at pretending it didn't bother her. In September of 1893, Lizzie and Emma moved to a new home on French Street. They named it Maplecroft and attempted to get about the business of living again. In 1904, Lizzie saw a play starring the actress Nance O'Neill. She was so amazed and starstruck by Nance that she sent a fan letter asking if they could meet. Nance replied that yes, they could, and even sent a bouquet of flowers with her reply. The two struck up a sort of friendship, and that fall, the entire acting company was invited for dinner at Maplecroft. So whatever annoyance Emma had with the friendship is not known, but it must have been significant enough to cause the sisters to part ways. Oh, in May of 1905, Emma left Maplecroft and the sisters did not speak again during their lifetimes. Isn't that interesting? But it wasn't the murders that and the trial and, and that sent Emma away. It was Lizzie's relationship with this actress. Have so we, one can speculate, were they, you know, right. That's what I was going to say. What kind of, what was the nature of their relationship? And were both Emma and Lizzie possibly lesbians? And that's why they I'm going to have... say, I'm going to say, I don't think Emma was Emma. When she moved out of that house, she said, I stayed as long as I could until the situation became something I could no longer tolerate. Oh, okay. Being under the same room. And so, and so she moved out and the sisters did not ever speak again after that. Um, Emma was interviewed later on because this kept this periodically Lizzie stayed in fall river, changed her name to Lizbeth and she stayed there, but, Every so often, every 10 years or so, this would come up in the newspapers again. And Emma would stand by her and say, she did not do it. I, we have had our differences, but I believe my sister did not do it. I'm guessing that if she dated or she invited this actress into her home, the feeling I get, what I'm suspecting is that they were engaged the, you know, the, in the love that dare not speak its name. Right. Right. And time. Emma, Emma could not morally witness that or whatever. Right. I, that, and that's pure speculation on my part. And that's my final right. thought on it. I don't know no, what you yeah. guys think about it, but no, I agree that there has to be some sort of relationship there with the actress that was untoward because, um, yeah, just because of the nature of it and how it happened and and then the breakup with the sister afterwards. Yeah, there had to have been something there other than just a friendship. Agreed. Do you think that Emma was jealous of her sister's affection for Nance, the actress? Could be. Possibly. Or even if they could were be. just close friends, it could mm-hmm. have been that Emma was jealous, you know. Sure. Um, you know, even if there was nothing, you know, romantic with the with the ladies. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I don't know. And it could have been something, I mean, maybe they weren't in love. I kind of like to think they were because I, I, I hate to imagine somebody growing old alone without ever having experienced that. You know what I mean? Oh, agreed. For sure. For um, sure. That would be 
that would be hard. Um, so I like to imagine Lizzie had a, you know, relationship with her, but then that makes poor Emma all alone. So I don't know. Anyway. Truly interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. The whole thing. I, there um, were so many things that you brought out in this that I had never, ever, ever heard of before. Yeah. Good book. And, uh, I, I will continue to put a link on the show notes. Um, so we will be bringing you a new episode in one to two weeks uh, that Andy is currently writing. Do you have any comments on that right now? It's about the most prolific serial killer in the UK um, who killed 15 or 16 young men. Um, and the only reason why he got caught was because he was starting to flush bones and flesh down the toilet and the toilet got stopped up in his apartment complex. And that's the only reason why I got caught. And we'll get into that. And we'll talk a little bit about how a lot of these serial killers are homosexual. And so then, and I was talking with Chris about this, my husband Chris about this. And it's like, did society create them because they were so shunned by who they were? Or was it that they were just born that way? And I mean, I don't know. It's just it's really, really interesting um, subject to talk about, because one of the reasons why this man didn't get caught and one of the reasons why a lot of serial killers back then did not get caught and got away with it was because they chose to kill the undesirables of society, prostitutes and gay people. And so um, people just didn't care that these young men were missing. They didn't even report them missing. Um, Right. So while I find it hysterical the way that he got caught, his crimes obviously were unspeakable and just unimaginable and horrific. And so anyway, but, yeah, we're going to have another true crime um, episode or two or three coming up. I'm not sure how long it'll be yet, but it's very, very interesting. Very cool. Looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, as always, want to thank everybody for listening. You make every episode worthwhile and fun. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. Um, yes, and thank you, Mom, for joining us, and we hope you join us again sometime. I just want to thank you. This has been uh, pure joy for me. Thank you. We've enjoyed having you. We've enjoyed having you, and we love you. We love we you so much. So, love yeah, you thanks so much reach out to us. Oh, and Hey, don't forget to uh, rate us and give us a five-star rating um, wherever you download your podcast. Cause that helps us get found a little easier when people are looking for, yes. you know, stuff like this. So we would appreciate exactly. it very, very much. Cause it's hard to compete with the big celebrities that have their podcasts, you know, it is. Yeah, absolutely is. Well, until next time, uh, reach out to us on, uh, Instagram or Facebook or email us at Ichabod's house pod at gmail.com. And remember Ichabod loves you. Bring a flashlight and always bring extra pants.